But this is really what's going on. Through that minister, Jesus himself speaks to the people and he is nourishing them. He is nourishing the souls of his people through his word communicated through the minister. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone. Thanks for joining me in the Fox Den. Drive through any town in America, and you'll find many different churches. For example, in my hometown, I can think of this one road that has five churches on the same street, all within a mile of each other. In another town, there are four churches on the same city block. Now, these are all Christian churches, but they're different denominations. And so then that leads us to the question of, why are there so many different churches? Or why are there so many different denominations? Well, the real reason for this is that we don't necessarily agree concerning what the Bible teaches. Now, first of all, let me say, that doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. What that means is we don't necessarily agree with what the Bible is saying. So the fault is not with Scripture. The fault is with us sinful people who don't see things clearly. So because we have different views and we understand the Scriptures differently— We have different denominations, which means we have different churches, and that's why there's so many of them. We differ in our theological beliefs, things like how does God save, or our views of baptism. There's some who believe that only adults who have made a profession of faith are to be baptized, and there are others who baptize infants. Or we have different views of how the church is to govern itself. Or we have different views of how we are to worship. So there are different styles of worship. So all these differing views play a part in having different churches. At this point, let me just say that different denominations aren't necessarily bad. You see, we have different theological views because we are sinful and we don't see things clearly. God is not at fault for not communicating clearly. We are at fault for not understanding clearly. And the reason why we don't understand clearly is because we're still sinful and we see things dimly. So please understand, God has not failed to communicate. We have failed to understand properly. And I mean that across the board, all of us. Now, we all think that we're 100% right, and I don't mean that arrogantly. If you believe something is false, you're not going to believe it, right? So we all believe that the way we understand the Scripture is true, but certainly none of us see the scriptures perfectly clear. All of us see this dimly. So I think these different denominations allow us to worship God together separately. So if you think about it, when believers gather on Sunday morning to worship God, we are doing this together, but obviously we're separate. We're not in the same location, we're not in the same building, but we are doing it together. So when our church gathers to worship God and the church down the road gathers to worship God and we're doing this in Christ, though we may be a different denomination, we're still worshiping God together. So I don't think different denominations are necessarily a bad thing. I do think they allow us to worship God together separately. So that leads me into what I want to discuss today. I want to talk about worship. And I believe this is the most divisive issue in the church today. Now, it's tied to theology. In other words, we worship according to what we believe the Bible teaches about it. So it's really a theology of worship. So at this point, let's define worship. What is worship? 
Well, let me first answer by saying what worship is not. Worship is not singing or music. Now, I'm fairly certain I'm going to frustrate a lot of you by making that statement. And the reason why I say this is it has been pushed that singing and music are worship. So, for example, I've heard worship leaders say, let's have a time of worship. And by that, they mean the music. Or you even hear the same thing on Christian radio stations, where you might have a Christian concert and they talk about it being a great time of worship. Now, I'm not saying that worship can't happen with music. Music is a part of worship, but worship is not exclusively singing and music. Worship includes much more than just music. So what is worship? Well, let me first say that we can have private worship and public or corporate worship. So you can worship God as you're in the car. You can worship God at the table when you're eating a meal with your family. You can worship with your family. You can worship out on the trail. You can worship on Sunday morning as you gather with the people of God. But as a definition of worship, I like how David Peterson states this in the title of his book that he published in 1992. And his title is Engaging with God. And I think that title tells you what happens in worship. You see, worship isn't just a ritual that you go through. There's a dialogue that happens in worship, a dialogue between you and God. In fact, worship services are often set up as a dialogue with God, and we're going to go through that here in just a second. But what I want you to understand is that when we worship God, there's an interaction that happens. There's a dialogue. We're engaging with God in worship. Now, again, in this episode, we're going to look specifically at the worship service of a church on Sunday morning. And I want to show you this dialogue or this interaction that takes place in a worship service. Now, I understand the worship service structure that I go through in this episode will probably be a little bit different than your church's worship service. But I want to look at the different parts of worship and show you how this is an interaction or a dialogue with God. Now, let me also say the example that I'm going to use is more of a traditional structure as opposed to a lot of non-denominational churches. Now, I'm also not saying that the traditional service is right and the non-traditional services are wrong. I'm just merely using this as an example to illustrate the dialogue that happens. So, for example, in some services, there is a call to worship. And oftentimes, the pastor reads a portion of Scripture as a call to worship calling the believers to come and worship God. In other words, it's an invitation from God to the people to come and worship Him. And then it's often followed up with an invocation. So you can see this as the people of God calling out to Him to come and join them in worship. Some services have a confession of sin, and this is a time where the people corporately, through the minister, confess their sins to God And then it's followed by an assurance of pardon where the minister communicates to the people that their sins are forgiven. So in the confession of sins, the people are telling God that they have sinned. And in the assurance of pardon, God is telling the people through the minister that their sins are forgiven. Now, let me say this. This is one of the most powerful things I've experienced in a worship service. There is something powerful when a minister looks at you using the word of God and he tells you, Christian, your sins are forgiven. And to hear that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I can honestly say I looked forward to that part of the worship service where the minister would tell me that my sins are forgiven. 
And it was God through the minister telling me that my sins were forgiven because he was using the word of God that was communicating to me that my sins were forgiven. Now, is it because I didn't know that? Of course I knew my sins were forgiven. But to hear it from the minister, knowing that God is communicating to me through that minister that my sins are forgiven, that's powerful. Now, also in a worship service, we have song. And in, and in these songs, we sing to each other and we sing to God about what God has done for us. And there's also prayer, where the minister speaks to God on behalf of the people, pleading to God the needs and concerns of the people. And then there's the sermon. Now, I plan on doing an entire episode on this piece right here, but let me just say this. In the sermon, Jesus himself speaks to the people. Now, on Sunday morning, when I'm sitting in the pew, I can see the pastor up there. The pastor has taken time throughout the week to study a scripture or a passage. He has crafted a sermon, and he is actually speaking up there at the pulpit. So he's done the work, and he's communicating to the people what he has crafted. He's communicating to the people his sermon. But this is really what's going on. Through that minister, Jesus himself speaks to the people, and he is nourishing them. He is nourishing the souls of his people through his word communicated through the minister. In other words, the minister is nothing more than the voice box of Jesus. This is a very important piece in the worship of God in a worship service. And again, I plan on doing an entire episode on this piece right here. And also with the reading of Scripture, God is speaking to the people through the minister. So as the minister reads different passages of Scripture, God is talking to the people, and the minister is really just a voice box. And typically, the worship service concludes with a benediction. Now, different churches do the benediction differently. Some conclude the service with a prayer, and they call that the benediction. The benediction is really a pronouncement of blessing on the people. So in the Presbyterian church, typically the minister raises his right hand or both hands, and he speaks a benediction on the people. Now, a lot of people can see this as mere formality, just something we do by tradition, just kind of an empty ritual. But this is really what's going on. As the minister speaks the benediction to the people, it is actually Jesus himself who is pronouncing blessing on the people, and he's doing it through the minister. So at the end of the service, when the pastor gives the benediction, I tell my family, Jesus is blessing you. Now, please understand, I'm not suggesting that the pastor has some kind of -of out-of-body experience and Jesus kind of takes over him as if he's in some kind of trance and he has no idea of what's going on. And then after the service, he comes to. No, the minister is completely mindful through the whole thing. And sitting in the pews, it looks like an empty ritual. But it's not an empty ritual. Jesus himself through the minister, is blessing his people. Now, there's another piece that I want to talk about, and again, I'll probably do another episode on this too, but this falls within the worship service, and that is the sacraments, or as some of you would call them, the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, or communion. And again, these are not empty rituals. These are not just mere traditions. Something is happening. So with baptism, God is marking you as his own. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus himself is hosting this meal, and he is offering it to his people, and he communicates the promise that he made, that his body and his blood are for you. And as you receive those by faith, he is declaring, you belong to him, and your sins are forgiven. 
Now, I hope what you've seen as I've gone through the different parts of a worship service is this dialogue that is going on, this interaction. These aren't mere rituals that we go through. This isn't just tradition. Stand up at this point, sit down at this point, read this part, fall along here, now we're here, this is what the bulletin says. There's something that happens in a worship service. There's a dialogue with God. There's an interaction. You're engaging with God. Now, at this point, I think it's important to to note that a lot of times we lose track of what's going on in the worship service. It's not uncommon during the sermon to be distracted about thinking about other things. Maybe you're sitting there and you look up at the ceiling, you notice they need to change some light bulbs. Because on this side of the grave, we still struggle with sin. We still see things dimly. Things don't seem as they really are. So it can look boring, repetitive, uninteresting. But here's the great thing about it. Even when we don't see that Jesus is actually nourishing our souls, he really is. See, I liken it this way. You can eat food like broccoli, and it's fairly uninteresting, unless you really dress it up with cheese sauce or something like that. And you can eat something like that, almost not even realize you've tasted anything, right? It's not like a chocolate shake or chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. But as you eat that broccoli, and it seems, for the most part, fairly uninteresting, it nourishes your body, whether you've paid attention to eating it or not. And it's the same as we go to a worship service and we interact with God and we engage with him in a worship service. And a lot of times our own sinfulness is losing track with what's going on. Jesus is nourishing our souls. You see, he's doing this in spite of our sinfulness. Now, I've gone through several pieces that you would see in a worship service. And there are other churches who include other things. So some churches may include dance or skits or things like that. Now, my point here is not to say that I'm right and they're wrong, but to bring up a question. What should we include in a worship service? What is allowed in worship? Now, there are some who hold to what is called the regulative principle. And that's basically just a fancy way of saying that we are to worship only as God has directed. And counter to that would be we get to worship in any way that God has not forbidden. So I hope you can see the difference between the two. One camp says anything is fair game as long as it's not forbidden. The regulative principle says no, we only get to worship God as he has directed. You see, we don't get to determine how we worship God. He gets to do that. And I'm going to direct your attention to Numbers chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. And there we see two sons of Aaron, and they were ordained to serve as priests. And Nadab and Abihu offered to God unauthorized fire. And that's the way that it's described in verse 4. And what happened to them? They died. In fact, in Leviticus 10, we see in verse 1 that they offered incense that was not authorized, which God did not command them, and fire came out and consumed them. You see, we have to be very, very careful with the worship of God. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to come and consume us with fire, but I do think this is a warning to us. God gets to tell us how he is to be worshipped. We don't get to make it up. So I want to be very clear. I'm not suggesting that I'm right and those who add other things are wrong. I do want to make a point that we have to be very, very careful what we include into the worship of God. We worship him as he directed because he gets to determine how he is worshipped. Now, why is all this important? Well, first of all, we need to know what worship is. 
And by that, I don't mean just a mere definition. I mean we need to know really what worship is so that we can see that worship is an engagement with God. There's an interaction that happens here. And second, you need to know what happens in worship. You need to know that there's this interaction that happens. And third, I think this is important, really in light of the regulative principle, this idea of looking at worship and saying, okay, how has God commanded us to worship him? And are we worshiping him within our own innovations or these things that God has commanded us to do? Things like reading the scripture, prayer, song. And then finally, I think this helps you understand that really you need to be part of a church. Yes, you can worship God on your own, but we are not saved by ourselves. God has come to save his people in Christ, and that is plural, people. And so we gather together as the people of God, and in a worship service, we engage with God. We interact with him. We dialogue with him. We pray to him. We hear him speak to us. We confess our sins to him. He tells us our sins are forgiven. Now, at this point, I want to add a piece that I didn't really talk about before, and that is the minister. The minister is a picture of Christ. I've talked about it a little bit in the sense that when he proclaims the gospel, when he preaches the word of God, Jesus himself speaks through him. In the benediction, when he pronounces a blessing on the people, it is Christ who is blessing his people through the minister. But the minister serves as a picture of Christ, who is the conduit between God and man. The minister is not the conduit. In a sense, he's the stand-in or the representative of Christ. And so, when he reads the scripture, God is speaking to the people through the minister. When he preaches the word of God, Jesus is speaking to his people through the minister. When he declares the benediction, Jesus is blessing his people through the minister. When the minister prays to God on behalf of the people, he is bringing the people's concern to God. So he serves as this representative of Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man. And we see that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. So here's my assignment for you. This is going to be fairly easy. I encourage you to read John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. And that's the passage concerning the Samaritan woman. And the first thing you're going to see there is the grace of Jesus on a sinner. But two, they talk about worship. And she brings up how the Jews worship in one place and they worship in another. And Jesus tells her there's a time coming when neither place matters. Because true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's verse 24. So I'm going to encourage you to memorize John chapter 4 verse 24. And then I'm going to encourage you to memorize Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Now, I think it's going to be helpful for you to read the first 11 chapters because Paul uses the conjunction therefore, and that therefore is actually pointing back to the first 11 chapters. So basically, he's saying because of what I've just told you in these 11 chapters, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, think of this in light of the Old Testament system where they would bring animals to the priest and the animals would be slaughtered. Here, Paul is talking about giving ourselves to God, in a sense, alive, that our lives would be his lives, that we would give our lives to him for his service, not out of mere obedience, but out of loving gratitude. That's what the therefore is really getting at. Because of those first 11 chapters, because you've seen the grace of God, 
present your bodies to him as living sacrifices, not in fear that if you don't do it, God's going to get mad at you, but because you love him. But notice at the very end of this verse, the end of verse 1, doing this is worship. D.A. Carson edited a book several years ago, and the title is Worship, Adoration in Action. And that's the point he's getting at. In worship, we adore God because of what he has done, the grace that he's extended to us, but it's also action. And again, it's not just mere obedience. Of course we obey God, but we serve him. We present our bodies to him as living sacrifices in gratitude. We do it because we love him and we're thankful for the grace he extended to us. Now let me make one more point. God has often given a bad rap here. He created us to worship and he created us to worship him. Now, there's a lot of people who think God is pretty arrogant for doing that. They say things like, well, I'd never make a whole bunch of people to you know, sit around and worship me. And that just shows you how arrogant God is. Well, here's the thing. God is sinless, so it can't be arrogant. God is perfect, holy, righteous, just, so it can't be arrogant. And here's the other thing. God doesn't need anything, and he definitely doesn't need anything from us. So if he doesn't need our worship, and he created us to worship him, then it seems to me worshiping him is good for us. You see, it's healthy to worship God. That's why he did it. He didn't do it for himself. He doesn't need you to worship him. You need to worship him because you need it. Now let me close with this invitation that Jesus gave to us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He invites you to come to him and he will give you rest. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can find this episode on several different apps. If you like what I do, please leave a positive review. Please share or tell others about The Fox Den. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. Also check out thefoxdenjournal.com to find articles and other resources. Thanks for listening.